0: But if we go from nothing to now we have something. And if you think of the, the delta, if you measure how much how much percentage change you've done from zero to one, it's infinite. But if you go from one to two, it's 100%. But from zero to one, it's infinite. So so that, that's the part I enjoy the most. I love bringing things which are sort of dancing in my mind to reality.
1: And welcome to Social Confos, the 11th edition of Social Confos. I usually say good evening, everyone, but there might be some people watching. Say good morning too, because Diego, we have our first guest from Asia.
2: That's right. Remember when I was still in New Zealand and you always made a joke, how is it in the future? I'm actually yeah. going to experience <laughs> this tonight because... We're still on Tuesday, but our guest is already on Wednesday, so kind of got, kind of gonna be fun talking to somebody in is it March twenty fourth? Yeah. yeah,
1: So March twenty fourth.
2: All the way in Singapore right now, and it's early in the morning, so we hope he didn't wake him up too early. But we have Ruben Noronha. I met Ruben during the podcasting fellowship I'm in, and it was quite. You know, when you meet somebody and you just click when you see them, how they interact online and we were both in this like global hack weekend, global build weekend, like a hackathon spanning over four days. And we kind of were like both press as podcasters, but we also decided to join some teams and I was like, they invited us up as moderators as well. So I volunteered as a moderator. But then the funny thing, when it came to Ruben, he was also in that Zoom call. And they called him up. And I love the way how he handled it because his team kind of, as he said, it fizzled away. But he was so lighthearted and so positive in the way he explained it that everyone like enjoyed the talk. And it was a really fun conversation in that, like, you know, casual, but also fun setting as how things go wrong in in a hackathon and you got an idea, but you can't even start. And I think that's also going to expand on the topic we're going to explore further on today on, you know, it's kind of like startups in that sense, going from zero to one and building that out. So without further ado, Ruben, I want to bring you up and welcome you to social combos. Hope you also got a hot beverage with you as we keep it casual here.
0: Thanks a ton, guys. Super, super excited to be here. Yes, it is 8 a.m. in the morning here in Singapore. Uh, so I'm technically in, in the future.
1: Yeah. Actually, we have some people in the comment section that are mentioning it. He's in the future. <laughs> and also uh, so shout out to Gregory for already giving a heads up on the audio and the video quality. So most Vietnamese people, yeah, we've seen crazy rich Asians. So we kind of know that's... References to what Singapore looks like, but for for those of for, of us who've never been to that part of the world, what what should people know about Singapore that you feel like I I'm really attracted to this for the for the moment uh, that I'm living here?
0: Yeah, that's that's a, that's such a wide question, but. I think Singapore is, so for for people who don't know, Singapore is a small little island state, city state in the south of Malaysia in Asia. They call it sort of the gateway to Asia. It is one of the most developed cities in this part of the world. And I think what's fascinating with Singapore is if you look at the history. Singapore is actually what they call a third world country just about 60 years ago. And a very short period of time, which is I think less than 60 or 65, they've gone from like third world, which is literally marshlands, to one of the biggest, like metropolitans and the most forward-looking metropolitans uh, out there, and I think what's interesting about the city and wh- why I really like it is is two things. I think number one, it's such a, a, a multicultural place. That is, like, if you think of the average Singaporean, right, it's a mix between you know somebody who comes from Chinese ethnicity, somebody who comes from Malay ethnicity. There's a big like community of Indian ethnic uh, people here, so it's very very diverse, and that sort of fuels into. The culture fuels into the language, fuels into the food. Uh, the food here is fantastic. But also from a pure, you know, business point of view, it's a great place to be running and operating a business. Setting up a business literally takes maybe a day. Setting up a bank account takes a day. Tax rates are probably, you know, are, are, would not be as low as, as as the Middle East, but they they are they're very very low as compared to the rest of the region. And it's just a great place. It, it just is a place which just works so well. And yeah, I think I think those are some of the things which which sort of Attracted me to come to Singapore and why, why I'm living here. I was at dinner the other day and I was literally having dinner with eight people because that, that's the rule now in Singapore. More than eight people can't, can't meet, but each of them was from a different country. And I was like, wow, like, where do I get that? Like, yeah, I get that on ODP <laughs> and, and on deck, but like, how, how like, where else could you, you potentially get that? So yeah, I think Singapore is just a fantastic place. You had so many smart people in the city and sort of very, very like, forward and
2: future looking. Cool. So, but you're originally from like the south of India, right? Uh, Goa, if I remember correctly, and yeah. I, I've heard great things about Goa as well, beautiful place by the coast. So what triggered you to move to Singapore in the first place? Cause you were already like running a startup of your own in India and yeah. reading some of your backstory, sold it off and then work, got hired by another startup in, I think based in Singapore. And yeah. was that yeah. the main reason you move, or was there another like a uh, specific trigger?
0: Oh no, it was totally random. Yeah, Like truth be told, now, now, and now when I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I, I wanted to move to Singapore, it's, it's, it's a great place. It was absolutely random. So I was, of course, born in Goa, which is uh, on on, uh, the southern part of of, of India. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. For some reason, my, actually, not for some reason, my mom and dad thought I would get sort of, me and my sister uh, would get a better education if we moved to a slightly bigger city. So we moved to the north of India, uh, spent most of my time, you know, schooling and growing up there. And that's where I I went to my first job. I I started my first company. And then towards the end of, of the company, when we were like exiting the company, there was this interesting opportunity of this, of, of of the startup doing things in Southeast Asia. So they weren't really in Singapore. They were in, in Bangkok and, and Indonesia. And I knew somebody at the company. I'm like, this would be cool. Like, whoever thought that I would land up in Thailand or Indonesia to work, right? That's absolutely crazy. So I'm like, Let, let's give it a shot. And that's how I how I how I landed up in the region. And then over time, you know, the headquarters moved to Singapore and they were like, you know, why don't you move to Singapore? And I'm like, sure, like, okay. But, why not? Um, <laughs> Why not? But no, okay, but there, there was no plan. Like, yeah, I was just like, okay, this sounds interesting. Let's do it.
2: Yeah, sometimes stuff like this just happens and it, it lines up. But before we explore Singapore a bit, I want to talk a bit about your like first startup that you started with your friend and you mentioned you guys exited. And here, like the startup ecosystem is in Suriname at least. Uh, I'm not sure how it is in easy. It's not very like what you usually see in the media with venture yeah. capitalism, acquisitions, all that, you know, business and economic language. So, could you walk us through how that was for you in India in your first startup and what does exiting actually mean in that sense? Yes, good question.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think the, the, the first caveat is that I don't think any startup ecosystem is what the news says it is. That's like the, the, the influencer version of, of what real life looks like. <laughs> I think that we realized that when we were running a company and we're like, every day there was this new company raising capital and we're like, what's wrong with us? Like, why aren't we raising capital? Like literally every day there was a the news of somebody raising capital. So I think one, one thing we realized when we were building uh, the company, uh, it was called Nivasa uh, and Nivas in Hindi means a home. So for, for, for context, the company we were trying to solve for co-living we were sort of we would take up large apartments uh, break them into smaller units not break them but like you divide them into smaller units and sort of sublease them to people like you and me who were moving from smaller towns in, of india to delhi and gurgaon which was where we were operating because you know renting an apartment finding an apartment and especially nice apartments is very very hard uh, so think of this as like the we work for for residential um, property that was sort of what we were trying to kind of build to, to your question on what an exit means so we had essentially been doing this for about two and a half years, wherein we bootstrapped the business. And what that means is we were essentially profitable. We were a profitable small business, just like any other business. <laughs> That's how business should be, <laughs> profitable. But anyway, we were doing that business. And about two years in, we, we made a couple of decisions wherein we wanted to sort of, you know, raise venture. We wanted to scale faster. And those didn't really pan out because that wasn't really, you know, in sync with what we had, how, how the business was, was evolving. So we reached a stage where we are like, you know, we don't see ourselves doing this for the next 10 years of our lives. And like, there was a lot of other things wherein we were like quite burnt out as founders. So we decided that, hey, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to stop. We, we can't be operating this business with all of our, you know, with, with that 100% commitment. So there was another com- company and a competitor of ours in the space. And for us, literally an exit was, we went to spoke to them, be like, hey, this is what we have. Do you guys want to buy this? This is what our liabilities are. These are what our assets are. This is what customers we have. This is what we have. Do you want to buy it? it was as simple as that. Uh, they were like, yeah, sure. We'll buy it. We negotiated on, on, on how the uh, assets would, would transfer, and that was it. Uh, this is a very, very simple, like, like most exits are nowhere close to this. There's a lot of like diligence which goes in. There's a lot of like conversations which go on. But uh, at the early stage, actually, it's not, not very hard. It's just, hey, I have something you want. Do you want it? Uh, can we agree on a price? And that's it.
1: That's interesting because in, 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 in general, people are really, and especially in, in Suriname, I've, I've been asked once to buy up a, a company that was exiting. And I was looking and I was like, yeah, but I don't see the unique selling point in, in what you're trying to offer me. There's nothing, and of course, I think you were in a better place because you actually had spaces or actual places and clients that were already profitable. And I think yeah. that's that's a misunderstanding when when people talk about an exit or selling off the company. is you do have to have a profitable company in order for people to be interested, so I, I it's interesting to hear you talk about like why are we not getting the venture capital? Why are we? Why are they getting? But did you did you get funding, or did you have to do everything from scratch and build up enough that you had enough capital to? out the salaries and enough capital to invest
0: yeah so we did not raise venture capital and basically me and louis was my co-founder we bootstrapped everything so we put our savings into it now what's interesting is the business we landed up in and you know in retrospect we are we actually landed up in a pretty good business right because like we were profitable uh, and all the money we were actually earning was going back to, to scale the business. And to give you context where the money was going, we were essentially acquiring properties. So we would go to a we would work with real estate agents who would help us acquire uh, new properties. And, you know, that was a, a fee we would pay. We would also invest in furniture. So, and that's sort of wherein we would take in assets, we would buy furniture. And, you know, you can imagine a typical VC's like, no, no, that's that's too asset heavy. You don't want that. And I I, I get that. But from a pure business-minded point of view, the, the return on investment on that furniture of mine was amazing. Like I was recovering the cost of my furniture in one year and that furniture would last for five years. That's five times, like that's, I think a hundred X better than maybe putting my money in a fixed deposit. And so, so those were things what we were saying, but, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, what, what we also learned is businesses is like, yes, it is about profitability, but it's also about growth. You know, how fast can you scale? Is this a scalable uh, solution? And I think I see, I see value in that. But also, you know, really think about cash flow because you might be a profitable business. But if you have bad cash flow and I've seen this in more traditional businesses, yeah, cash is king. And that's what sort of kills businesses eventually. You run out of cash.
2: Speaking of cash flow and especially you guys going into hard assets in in that sense. And I I get what you are saying that, you know, In investors, they usually look, it's like kind of a risky choice going in hard assets because you're not sure when you're getting that money back. Uh, I recently had a conversation like this on cash flow. So in particular, you guys were operating in the bigger cities. And I assume, this is just an assumption, that in India, like many other, I guess, um, not first world countries, Usually people go from the rural areas to the city and yeah. this was basically the, the gap that you guys saw. Yes. So in that sense, did, weren't there any other like traditional or just other platforms like your startup in these big cities? Because I imagine India with having a billion population that there should be others thinking of these similar things. Or is it just just that there's so much demand that it doesn't matter how many others there are?
0: Yeah. It, it was a lot of the latter idea We were not the only company in the space. Um, in fact, one of the, the the first companies who entered in into real estate were, were and I'm sure you have I, I don't know if you have, you have to have it there, was property listing. Wherein owners or property agents would come and list these are the properties available, and there would people who'd be like, hey, I'm interested in that property, I'm interested in that. What we were sort of doing was, in my opinion, was version two of that same business. So think of Craigslist, right? You you have the the listing websites already there, but now there was sort of like an Airbnb kind of opportunity, wherein just listing wasn't enough. People had to find good apartments. People had to have a good experience when moving into that apartment. You have to realize that in India, and this was an interesting stat we came across that. Real estate yields, which is, you know, if you think about the rent you make on your apartment, uh, how many years does it take for you to recover the cost of your apartment is one of the lowest in the world. Uh, And what that means is that people, again, fact check me if I'm wrong, but it's probably, it's pretty, pretty low. But what that means is that people don't actually care about rental income per se. Like if I'm a landlord, I only care about the appreciation I'm getting on my property. So what I'm, what my mindset as a landlord is I'm going to get a house, I'm going to pop it in five years and I just need to keep it going. I don't really care about making it a nice place. I don't really care if, you know, the taps are breaking and the house are. I don't care. I want to get this property and in five years, I'm going to flip it for maybe like 40%, 50%, sometimes three times, four times the price. Uh, and that's sort of the phase what happened in India from I think about 2002, 2003, all the way to 2010, 2012. Which is sometime where we started the company. We'd seen this massive increase in real estate because India's an economy was, was growing. There used to be you know apartment complexes that got sold out before even the first brick was was laid. It was that crazy. So it's, it's just that, an investment. It was just an investment, right? And in that context, when you look at the actual house, they were pretty shit. Like people don't care about it. Landlords didn't care about it. So we were like, you know what? People are ready to pay slightly more. Uh, to take their effort, or to get together to get a good product, and that was a clear arbitrage for us. We would essentially go to our landlords and be like, "Hey, we're going to make a nice, make you know, we're going to manage your property." Property management is not really thing, that popular thing in India. Also, another interesting fact is, real estate agents is one of the most unorganized <laughs> industry in India. So, like in Singapore, every real estate agent is is registered. Well, in India, I would say 99 percent of the real estate agents. Just our real estate agents because they have nothing else to do. So it's, it's a very unorganized and disorganized market. Um, so, yeah, we would tell landlords that, hey, we, we'll manage your property. We're a professional ma- property management service. And we would tell renters that, hey, you know, if you rent through us, yeah, you pay slightly more. But you get this great experience. You know, our processes are digital. You can pay digitally. You can sign your leases digitally, la la la. So, yeah, we were not the first company, but you could sort of see this wave of these, you know, version two companies in, my, in what I would say, trying to create a better experience for people like you and me who were not satisfied with just the listing experience.
1: Diego, I want to jump into this because trans business, because if I get it correctly, the business was getting people that, making it easier and cheaper for people to rent a space in a big city. Now, let's, let's, translated to Suriname, and 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 from our perspective ruben you have to imagine that surinamese students who go study abroad yeah uh, they want their own space so if if you ask any surinamese student who ever studied abroad they always wanted they they didn't always get it because you don't always have the luxury but they want their own kitchen and they want their own bathroom i think the kitchen is it's not nice, but Suriname students, they want their own bathroom. They're very yeah. particular about not sharing that. So, yeah. was there a similar experience in India and how did they overcome that?
0: Yeah, 100%. Like, everybody wants their own bathroom, right? Most mm-hmm. people probably don't want their own kitchen because you just like, every, like, I think with this generation and I'm you know, in like the late, late 20s, we've forgotten how to cook. Uh, so we just order everything, right? <laughs> so <laughs> they don't really care that much about about the kitchen, but they they want their own bathroom. So how we solve this? So what interesting is in the way a lot of apartments were built in 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 the ones we would take on. Usually there was a one to one ratio for the number of bedrooms to number of bathrooms. So if there were four bedrooms, there were usually four bathrooms. Maybe there might be three oh. bathrooms. Yeah. The challenge was that there were some bedrooms where the bathrooms were attached, and that was the that was the trick. If you had a bathroom attached to your bedroom, that was a premium. So what we would what what, we, what what would happen is, say I, I took up this four-bedroom apartment, right? and say it's you know arguably a thousand dollars a month. The it would not be an equal split of, of of rental. So if there are four people living there, and that's very common, the person who gets the better room uh, would either be bigger or would have an attached bathroom uh, would pay more rent. And at the end of the day, I think people have to you know weigh on what's most important to them. Some people like you know what. I don't want to pay the extra hundred dollars. I'm going to go buy alcohol. And you know that, that, that was important for them at that point of time. One interesting thing though, I realized uh, through this experience is we were essentially targeting young individuals uh, and young working professionals, which are people who are uh, just started their first jobs. But through the experience, and since you mentioned students, I think students is a more exciting market uh, for one simple reason, right? The person who pays the money and the person who gets the service are two different people. When you're yeah. a student, usually mom and dad are paying for the for the bills. And, you know, they're okay. It's like, hey, like, you know, Diego, you you got to go at a place which locks up at 9 p.m. And I'm absolutely fine with that. Diego would never pay his own money <laughs> to be locked up at 9 p.m., right? In like a hostel or kind of thing. But mom and dad would be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll play premium because they're taking care of Diego. And essentially, especially in India, with, with, with at least a lot of women, right? You know, these hostels and paying guests are very, very strict. But but to your point, yeah, like, like everybody wouldn't get the attached bathroom. But if you wanted it, you, want, you would pay higher. But sometimes people wouldn't. Sometimes people prioritize things like going out, you know, buying stuff. They're like, yeah, we can, we can live with it. We can live with." It.
1: So it's an economic decision.
0: It's an economic decision. Yeah.
2: Cool. Yeah, I, I've had, I didn't have issues when I was abroad, but I think that's, that just speaks on how culturally, but also how you've been brought up. That's factored into that. And I think the, the bigger picture as the bigger culture in general has an, an effect on that. So shifting from, I guess, your, the, the startup in the real estate industry deciding, like, this is not something we want to do for the next 10 years, kind of being burned out. And you guys bootstrapped it from scratch. So you talked about enjoying this process from getting startup to zero to one. Could you first explain what going to zero to one means? And then when do you decide that you've uh, determined that you've reached that one mm-hmm. and then you're no longer a, a startup?
0: Yeah. Oh man. So let me answer the first first part. So all of us have ideas, right? I think as humans, we're very, very creative uh, beings. We're constantly thinking about stuff. And, you know, more often than not, most people have have great ideas, but I think a lot of people, and I would say majority of them, just get stuck at the idea. Right? You have an idea, and you, for whatever reason, that like you don't have the initiative, you don't have, you know, the confidence, or you you just don't know how to go from how do you take this in your mind to actually make it real. I, I jokingly would tell people that, you know, I wish you could just see what is happening in my mind, like or what's happening in the canvas of my of my head, and I wish you could just understand that because then life would be so easy. But literally translating all of that into the first piece of reality, taking it from, you know, what's happening in in this castles in the clouds to actually a physical thing you can feel and touch is what I would call zero to one. It's when, you know, you can, of course, see it, but when people other than you can see it, like, oh, yeah, like, now that makes sense. Now I understand what you were saying, right? And, of course, you know, you can compensate that by being an absolute fantastic, you know, orator and, and, and people who speak, right? I think, you know, politicians, you know, people in the government are very good at, at sort of converting what they see in their mind or at least give people the perception of that so that people can be like, oh, yes, yes, I believe that. But yeah, like taking that from, from an idea to something in reality is what I would call zero to one. And on a more tactical level, what that means is say, you know, you're running a company, right? David running a company and he's like, hey, Ruben, you know, I've been thinking about you know, expanding, or I'm thinking about, you know, starting a new podcast, right? You know, it's, it's an idea in that. Taking that, and I would say all the way to like, wow, Diego, here's a successful podcast channel. No. But taking that to the first, you know, piece of, okay, wow, I can see this. Okay, it's happening. This is good. Uh, I would say that is the zero to one phase. So for us, for example, getting our first apartment or getting our first two apartments when we were doing Devasa was a zero to one phase. But when we go from nothing to now we have something and if you think of the the delta if you measure how much how much percentage change you've done from 0 to 1 it's infinite but if you go from 1 to 2 it's 100% but from 0 to 1 it's infinite so so that that's the part i enjoy the most i love bringing things which are sort of dancing in my mind to reality um, when does it start stop, stop at 1 that's a great question i thought i was 0 to 1 in, in my previous company and when at, at the mac at the peak i i had almost 100 people on, on my team and I still thought we were at we were at one because it was just like so much more to do. Like we are like still one percent done. Like like so much. So so I don't know. I, I I don't know. I think I think the way I would say it is when you when you have something real and it's like more than one per one, one person believes that this is a thing. Like okay, I I can see where this is going and maybe they're ready to like you know give you their money, give you their time. Then I would say yeah, you you probably reached one. But,
1: yeah, one is uh, it can be elongated very, very wide to what your uh, end objective is. Hmm. Okay. I, I, I do want to jump back to, to Singapore in a bit because I think it's some somewhere related. I'm going to yeah. give a couple of quick shout outs to Joseph. Thanks for joining in. What's up, guys? And also Theo joining in from LinkedIn, giving a big up. And then there's some questions, and to introduce those questions, I jumped out of the screen earlier because I had to get this book. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with this one.
0: Yeah, I haven't read this, but yeah, I'm I'm sure it's it's a pretty good one
1: yeah so this is one of the books that they say like it's a definite read for uh, for some people who are interested in how go do you go from a third third world country to actually a developing country because it's the story of of almost like one person's vision how to get uh, a country out of that that periphery yeah. and into the center of of business so that's one thing but in one of the things that you really and that's what we in the pre-call we talked about it is a little bit how competitive singapore is and how actually it's get, it's be, it is a gateway in southeast uh, southeast asia for for business and then it jumps into a couple of questions i'm gonna read the questions out that gregory and and Seth had in the comments so gregory mentioned i heard singapore has a lot of economic freedom but little cultural freedom so no freedom in uh, speech for instance you understand it and then also elaborating, economically free, but social, socially authoritarian. And then somebody else joined in to say, rumor has it that it's hard to get kids with foreign passports into good schools over there because nationals get a priority. So as you are actually an, an expat in that sense of the word as well, have you noticed this? And can you give us a, like, a little bit of benefits analysis on, on what what this actually means?
0: Yeah. So, so to most of the of the comments, there it's it's, it's correct. Uh, I I don't know the part about the the kids with foreign national. I don't have kids, so I I won't be able to comment on that. But but yeah, like for example, protesting in Singapore is not allowed. You're not allowed to do a demonstration without getting a like a, a prior permit. So yeah, you're right. I think I think the, if if seen from an from an international lens. You could argue that Singaporean is a bit more authoritarian. Uh, Singapore's a bit less culture diverse. But I feel like at least my perspective to this is, and I come from India, right? Which is as diverse as it gets, guys. Like you travel three hours and the people don't understand the same language. It's as diverse as it gets. And I've seen the challenges India is facing. It's a, it's a beautiful country. It's a very, very promising country. But when it comes to actually managing and ruling that country, it's hard. Because think about this, right? You have people in different parts of the country. We, I think, have 28 or over 20 official languages. I speak two languages, Hindi and English, but there are so many, there are parts, of, there are so many parts of India where I can't even communicate to people. How does one sort of you know, manage and, and, and you know, politically run the country when you have such diversity? From a tourism, from a food, from a culture perspective, fantastic. But actually comes out of running the country, it's very hard. So I think Singapore and and you know you I'm sure the the book talks about this and how Mr Lee Kuan Yew used to think about it is. You know we are going to set some very very strong rules, and you don't want to break these rules. Within these rules, you have freedom to do stuff, but you you do not break these rules, and and that way I think you can argue that yes you know setting those rules is it's authoritarian. But the other lens is like, you know, if you let people do whatever they feel like, is that really good or not? I don't know. I think it's a debate which is still panning out. The way Singapore's managed to, to, you know, control COVID is, 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 is an example, right? You could not have done this if you were not a very authoritarian country. And for the last 10 days, we've not had a single community case. We've not had a single case of COVID. And I think the last death for COVID was maybe like three or four months ago. And again, probably COVID not a, a, a great example, but it's a, it's a recent example. You look at countries like India and the US. Yes, they are bigger countries, but you know they're, they're struggling to manage it. So, I think the broader question is how much of you know a, like authoritarian is is enough? You have India and say the United States on one hand, which is like absolutely free, and you know the last five years both have shown this movement towards you know far right, and then you have Singapore, like you know what. We're are, we gonna control racial harmony, for example, here there are no interracial like fights. People don't like Muslims don't kill Christians. And yeah, they are they're very strict about it. They like recently there, there were there was news about there was this person who was planning to attack, you know, a mosque and they were planning to attack you know Christians. And you know, there's there's this law called the ISD, I think, which has come a lot of a lot of criticism in the in the seventies and eighties because government would use that to sort of you know manage internal turmoil, you could use it against political opponents. But today they use it to sort of pick up potential terror attacks, right? And you don't have that stuff here. There is no racial violence. There are no racial clashes. And the government says like, you know, that that's our job. We have to set these rules up and that's what you get. So again, I think at a macro it probably take us another 50, 60 more years to really see if this model works or not. But but yeah, it, it is it is more it is more authoritarian. And the benefits are things like I mentioned, right? It's, a, it's the easiest to place to do business. There's no ambiguity, right? If I need something done and I follow all the rules, I know I, I will get it done. It, like India, for example, it would happen maybe like 20% of the times, the remaining 50% of the times, I would probably have to bribe somebody along the way. And on, in your mindset, if it's like, you know, that's just the cost of doing business. Like when we were in India, we're like, that's the cost of doing business. If you pay tax, think of this as a, as, as a tax, that's how the country functions. Okay. Yeah. In The US people just call it lobbying, right? <laughs> it's, it's another way of that. So I think it's a debate. I, I I don't know. I'm very happy personally. I'm 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 happy giving up some of my, you know, quote unquote, freedoms for the benefits I, I get.
2: I think yeah, there's always a trade-off in that sense. Uh, if you look at how countries are run, from authoritarian to democratic to, from what I've heard, there's even a level of meritocracy there, and you they you know put you in the positions based on merit on, on what you've achieved. But yeah. I quickly want to follow up on that part, on the diversity aspect, because Rowan had a, an interesting follow-up on that. So from her research, it seems like whiteness also seems to be prioritized. How does that affect doing business? And I know you also mentioned that the Western countries, uh, first world countries, where I guess the, the whiteness is prevalent. While she says they get prioritized, it's also hard for them to establish business aside from, you know, the quick setup. What, what, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, so I don't think in Singapore, anybody gets prioritized. Everybody's treated equally. Uh, so if I and Rohan, Rohan asked the question, would have come up and meet all the requirements and apply for, for, for to set up a business, they could do it. So by the law, it doesn't
2: make a difference. Yeah, so as a quick follow up to that, because um, she she traveled to, through Singapore, I think, and she she noticed that just at the airport, she noticed kind of this different that lighter skinned people and people with darker complexions worked in a kind of like different roles. Yeah. So yeah. May, maybe that's just a coincidence or not. But. Yeah,
1: it could be a perception. It, I think it's I think this to to. Because we can we can discuss this from uh, I think Ruand also has a scientific side as well and a research side to it, but it's it's it. I'm not sure whether or not this is prejudice, but I think let's let's flip it to another scenario. Whereas you are somebody coming from outside of of Singapore and you're you're not considered at all light skinned. So in 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 the Western world, so yeah. tell us from your perspective. Did you feel that you had to work harder in some cases, or do you feel like, though, no, not only from a, a jurisdiction, juridical perspective, I was treated fairly, but also when it comes to the opportunities that I get?
0: Yeah. So see, I, I think to, to most of the points, I think of course, like I, I won't say Singapore is is perfect. You you see challenges here. Interesting, like debate which goes on is Singapore. If you think of the ethnicity split; it's majority Chinese eth- eth- ethnicity. I think 70% is Chinese, about 20% is Malay and maybe like 10% is Indian. And they keep jokingly saying, and this is public, is, you know, is Singapore ready for a non-Chinese president? And most people are like, nobody gives a straight answer. So again, I I, I think that like you have to understand that it's a young country. I don't think there's like, if you compare racism and actual prejudice and sort of use what's happening in the US, see what's happening maybe like India against the Hindus and Muslims, we are nowhere as close to that. Is it ideal probably not like when i go to the cab a common question i get asked is hey are you in it because most brown people are in it and i'm like no I'm not in IT, but you're not in tech he's like oh okay 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 so i personally have not like i have not even felt an ounce of racism here i don't think opportunities have been reduced maybe it's my naive thinking maybe it's my naive uh, um, my naive reality but I personally have not faced anything. I don't think like opportunity is, is like I suffer for lack of opportunity. Maybe because you know I'm, I'm you know I'm in sort of in that educational strata, which you know is, is educated. I have a college degree, you know, I've done some stuff in the past, so maybe that, that 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 plays a role. But I won't say Singapore like scores 100 or 100. but if you were to score, say, you know, it would let, let's let's look at it in relative terms, right? Like it would probably score two times better or three times better than what's happening. So, yeah, possibly it's, it's been fine. But an interesting fun fact is the smartest kids in Singapore, guess where they go? They all work at the government. The government makes it a point to hire the smartest of the smartest in Singapore. And I, like that, I, I don't know many other countries who do that. I, so think that's, a, I
1: think it's brilliant.
0: It is it is one of the, it is a very, very beneficial And yeah, like if you work hard, and that's sort of what it was built on. You work hard, you put in the effort, you will get rewarded, and that was sort of the Singapore identity. Now, of course, like you know, we've gone from third world to first world, so there are a lot of other challenges the country faces today, like you know, cultural and you know, freedom of speech and things like that. But I think, just like any young country, it'll fit it, it, it as well.
2: Yeah, and I guess, yeah, just to okay. add so, from a research perspective, and I think you come with a unique set of backgrounds as well. But thanks for pointing this out, Rowan, uh, that we have to be cognizant of our privilege. And of course, there's research being done. But what we can ask Ruben is from his, his perspective, from what he's experienced so far. But. Yeah.
0: What?
1: I'm yeah. siding with Ruben. No, yeah. I'm siding with Ruben on this, and and I'm gonna give. Uh, I'm quickly gonna jump into the hire the best people for the government aspect. This is something that that we have to seriously consider as well, because in I think in certain Nordic uh, countries, like in, in in the north of Europe, we have a system as well where the best students become teachers, and I think that's a brilliant concept because not only sorry, not only do you get people who are actually great at their job teaching, I think that's a, a very brilliant approach, but also it it not only from a meritocracy perspective, but just in general, I think it's a really good approach. And also, I think I like, Ruben, I like what you're saying, because I, I do want to point out that you have a chip on your shoulders in the sense that or you when you left india you had already proper achieved you had achieved something in life you knew that you were going to succeed wherever you were in the world and i think that's important to to point out
0: oh 100% no ways about it
1: yeah so the, the the thing that we shouldn't forget is that if you had had success, if you know how to go about business, and we had a, the talk with about self-confidence and self-efficacy, if you know for a fact that, that you are capable of doing things and you're put anywhere in the world, you will succeed because you already have the idea that it is going to work for you. And then all of a sudden, things like race, ethnicity, where you're from, it doesn't matter as much. Because you already know like if I'm gonna to abide to the structure that's there, of course, and, and this is something that, and this is why I do want to point it out. And I when I went to the Netherlands, I assimilated. I'm not saying you should always do that whenever you go to a country, not try to only integrate, but also try to assimilate. But for me it was easier that way because then I knew that things weren't decisions weren't being made because of my ethnicity or where I'm from. And of course, I got the occasional, like, looked at my skin. And for, it's funny because for most Vietnamese people, I'm I'm quite white. And for most Dutch people, I actually am quite brown. So, but I did get the occasional, like, oh, you have curls in your hair and you're brown, so you're not going to university. And then when I told them I was a university student, oh, okay. So they were kind of surprised at the level that of education that I was at. But for me, it wasn't an issue because I knew I'm in mean, a country. There's a different set of rules. I have to avoid. Otherwise, it's not going to work for me. So I I do want to point that out. And 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 I mean, you're going to Singapore, Singapore, because you're going to have a certain huge advantage. We would live for a day that we could open a bank account within a day or start a business within a day. I'm not going to insure them. It's possible if you have the right connections and probably in other countries as well. And and yeah. not true nepotism, but just through having the connections you can run, but it's really, really hard. And, and we, if you're going to go to a country where you have that benefit there, you're going to have to adjust to the system. So I'm, I'm do, I am siding with Ruben on, on that one.
0: Yeah, I, I think, to, yeah, it's not perfect. And to what Rand was saying, I, I'm absolutely sure. I'm sure there is a lot of research. Like another interesting fact, which is really disheartening is you go to like what they call hawker centers where they sell, you know, like it's large food courts. It's really unfortunate, but most of the people who are cleaning dishes are old people. I've never seen that anywhere else in the world, but it is it is a reality here because Singapore went from like like a third world country where these people were younger to a first world country where prices, are like you know, you would get stuff for, like, for well, you would get an entire meal for, a, let's say, a dollar. But now th- that's expensive, and they've not managed savings and things like that. So, so yeah, I, I'm over saying that it's 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 perfect. But yeah, I think what Rajan was saying is, it is it is it is it is a trade off. There are some benefits. I, I know the value of you know, if you follow the rules and you get what you you were promised. It's so important because in India, for example, most of the time that doesn't happen. There's a, who do you know yeah. in between, which actually, you know, gets you from input to out. So yeah, I, I think, I think it, it, it I, I'm no way discounted that I, of course, come from privilege. I had the opportunity to land up here. Right? A lot of people don't have the opportunity to land up here, but at the same time, I think I'm very uh, aware of, of the opportunities I've been given and I want to make sure I make motion. so.
2: Cool. And I think that's a perfect segue to, let's say, yeah, to shift towards the opportunities. And I guess, especially in a business sense, because we mentioned before, starting a business, it takes a day or two. If you have all your papers, opening a bank account, you can have that within a few hours and credit card and check whatever you need. You just need $1 to basically start up capital, as they say. So... Let's explore this a bit more on from the business aspect. You've moved there to work for the startup as well. And can you walk us through first how it was from having your own startup to working in another startup? And then we'll go from that.
0: Yeah, I was very nervous. Did you know, you have all of this stuff around be your own boss. And once you're your own boss, you can't work for somebody else. And... Oh, and- Personally, it was like complete bullshit. Like that was there were just like things which are blocking me. So yeah, like, like going to this new space, the things I absolutely loved is I moved to a company which, which had raised which had raised a fair amount of capital at that kind of time. So I just felt I had so much more resources at my at my hands to be able to do the things I really wanted to do. You know, five months earlier or six months earlier, me and my co-founder were literally arguing about do we spend this ten dollars or not? And I think from a mindset point of view, that's super important. And that sort of drilled that frugality in my mind of how to behave with, with how, how to just operate. But, you know, I, I was not spending my, like, my mental bandwidth on, on such decisions anymore. Or at least I was like, okay, you know, we want to do this. Money can help us do this better. So I think that was one big uh, change and a positive change wherein I suddenly felt I had access to a lot of more resources. So every, you know, unit of energy I was putting in was giving me a larger unit of 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 output and outcome as a result. Uh, so that was, I think, one of the biggest biggest like positive things from you know shifting from running my own company to 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 working at the startup. Of course, you, you couldn't do everything your way, but but yeah, I think does th- that was something you, I I I missed a little bit. But would um, you say
2: it's like going from one to one hundred in that sense that you kind of left the zero to one phase and moved on to one to one hundred at oh, another absolutely. startup?
0: Absolutely. So, so when I joined this new company, I was my entire job was to set up a new business vertical for them. So it was almost similar that they had this idea, they wanted to go from zero to one, and that's sort of what I spent the first maybe you know, couple of months doing. But then, you know, it went actually from one to hundred, wherein we actually built that business out. We hired teams. I then started up new businesses within the company. So, so yeah, like it was it was zero to one at, at the start, and that's sort of probably why they why they hired me. But eventually I had to move to a very different mindset, which was, you know, a scaling mindset, wherein we were we were growing the business, different set of problems, different set of challenges and hiring people and all of that. So it was it was very exciting. Like the amount of stuff I learned in those two and a half years, I would not in my wildest dreams imagine that I could have learned that. Like if anybody told me, Ruben, this is where you're going to be in two and a half years, I'd be like, you know, chuck it. You're, you're bullshitting. That's no way possible.
1: So I saw, so I was wondering if we were going to make the switch back to entrepreneurship as well. But here's the, here's the thing that I've, I, have you discussed the comments of, of Tevin already? Because I see that Tevin jumped in and he wants to dynamic, shift the whole dynamic of the conversation.
2: We'll get to that in a minute, Tevin, and I'm not sure if you can see this, but let me quickly address uh, one thing quickly. So, to Roanne's point, she says uh, she wants you to know that she's not in any way trying to discredit your experience. And that's fair enough. appreciate <laughs> sure,
0: it. Uh, no, no, I, I love it. Um.
2: We yeah. really encourage the uh, discussion, so we're yeah. trying to keep it casual as well. And, uh, and Ruan,
1: Ruan, really don't worry about it. We, it's it's a casual conversation, so we were not taking anything personal at all. Don't don't worry. Not about at it.
0: all. Not at all. Yeah. I really appreciate you you, you mentioning those points because yeah. what you're saying is true. It's it's not it's not wrong. But but no, I really appreciate yeah. that comment. Thanks, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah. All right. So before we move to what Tevin's mentioning, I, I, I just want to stick to, you know, the, the startup phase a, a bit just to not lose the train of thought. Yeah. Building out this new vertical, um, going to one to one hundred and spending two and a half, half years here. And I imagine you learned a lot. So can you, I guess, two top things that come to mind from that experience that you've learned at this new company compared to your startup?
0: I think the first thing for sure, Diego, would be how important it is, like how important teams are. I, like, you know, before I joined this company, I thought, you know, you had to be a smart founder, you know, you needed a CTO. You had to be like tech, right? You needed capital. And I think why all of that is important through my experience at at my previous company, I realized that the the single thing which makes or breaks companies are the people who work there. And, you know, putting together a team, and a really, really good team, is by far the, the, the hardest thing to do. And I think that's the single most, you know, most important thing which decides success or failure of a company. So I think that's one thing um, I, I, I realized. And we at Zeringo, for example, I was fortunate to have, and like, those are the smartest people I've met. Getting them is hard. Keeping them is even harder. Because these are like highly talented people, right? They are there, including myself, right? They're there to grow. Like they, they're not, like, they could have been running their own companies, right? So they're here to grow. So creating that environment, which is, you know, allowing everybody to, you know, reach their full potential is very, very hard. The bar is very high. When I eventually was growing my team, just to keep up with my team, like it was like, it was just like pushing me to be better every every single day. So I think that's one, teams make all the difference. The second big thing I, I think I, I learned was, and is, I think my biggest takeaway from managing people is how, you know, like, so for context, when we were, at, when we were at, at, at a company, the top 100 at, at the company, the top 100 leaders, uh, went through this year-long, you know, coaching program, which was basically designed to help you be, you know, understand yourself better so that you could just be a better leader and better manager. And I think that was another fantastic learning experience wherein most of us actually don't really take the time to pause and and think about why we do what we do. Why do we behave a certain way? I'm reading this book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it's sort of a lot of what we learned in that- that, Yeah, uh, Kofi. Yeah. uh, And yeah, yeah, just like when you think about being a manager, right? you think about leading people and you're responsible or like really changing your mindset. And I think this, this line puts it really well from, you know, a leader from the front to a leader from the back. So if you think of armies, right? armies are led by the leader in the front. He's like, we go in that direction, everybody walks. We go in that direction, everybody walks. But if you think of, you know, like say Santa Claus, right? He's at the back. His rangers are in front of him. He, so he's like sort of, we're like, yeah, rangers, Like, I'll tell you what needs to be done, but you guys are ahead. So this concept of what some people use called the servant leader, wherein as a leader, your, your job is not to be the boss. That's sort of most common perception. That's what, you know, when you have three people working for you, you're like... I got to be a boss, you know, I got to tell them what to do. And you know, if they're not working, I want to make sure that work is done. That's one way to think about it. And we, like, I have just learned that that's not a very effective way to do it. But sort of being a servant leader, being like, hey, you know, Diego, for you to succeed, for you to succeed, what can I do so that you are successful, right? And if you're successful, I'm successful. Sort of switching to that mindset. And again, I think the caveat is this doesn't apply to all jobs. This doesn't apply to all organizations, but for organizations, which, uh, I think this this the the, the guy said Netflix uses this. term, has high talent density. bunch of talented people in the same room. You can't you can't be a uh, mm. dictating boss. You have to be a servant leader. Uh, and I think that was another big takeaway me from that experience.
1: And it's much harder. It's it's, it's much hard. harder to to be a servant leader because you don't get to to go your way. You you don't always get to do it the way you want because in yeah. the end you have you have to you have so much talent, like you said. And and there's talent, and if you don't do the right things to support them, they they leave because they have so many opportunities elsewhere, Absolutely. and you end up and you end up with the the weakest links in that yeah. regard if you don't do anything about it. So it's yeah. it's really I, I do want to jump into to a couple of things you've already mentioned and a couple of things that you've given, and then Diego is going to ask another question before we head into the crypto space. But you mentioned bootstrapping, and I think it's important for young entrepreneurs. To, to understand what, what bootstrapping is. You already discussed a couple of parts, but especially focusing on the people, don't think that having venture capital is the thing you need for a startup. But but can you, can you give us like one or two basic bootstrapping principles that you did that you felt like these things, usually young entrepreneurs spend a lot of money on and I really didn't care anything about it and it ended up being a good decision. Do you, do yeah. you have some cases for us?
0: Oh, absolutely. Again, this is again contextualized to the kind of business you're running, but you don't have to spend on marketing. I think you don't have to spend on marketing on ads, Facebook. Just
1: just kidding, just kidding. (laughs) Just tell the story. Just tell the story.
0: If you're an an early stage company and you want to get your first hundred users, you're burning your money by spending on Facebook ads. You're burning your money and spending on Instagram. Like start a podcast you will probably get 100 people who are interested in what you're doing and you will get the right 100 people. You will get the 100 people who care about what you're doing and at some point will be like, hey, I want to pay you money for what you're doing. You're not going to get that using ads. So that's one. Like as you're bootstrapping and you're in that mindset. And again, I think when you're scaling, the first thing I would say is go raise money because the only thing which stops you from scaling is you run out of cash. You don't want that. Once you've hit product market fit, you know what you're building. People want it. Go and raise growth capital. And there, you know, then you hire teams, you you know, sort of make sure that everybody knows what you're doing. But for your first hundred users, even your first thousand users, you know, if people are not recommending each other. If people are like, you know, I don't want to spend five minutes of my time listening to, to jean luc then they're not going to pay you the money. And that's the only way to figure out if you've created value or not. Are people parting with money? Are they giving you their money or not? If they're not giving you the money, you're kidding yourself that you're creating value. You're not creating value. And again. I'm not saying that you need to do this all the time, but as you're on the journey of figuring out product market fit, have you figured out what you want to be doing? Yeah, I think it's important. So that's one. The second thing is, I don't know if a lot of bootstrapping companies do it, but like spending on like office space, I yeah. think even today relevant to buy, get office space. Uh, a lot of people are like, yeah, let's get an office. Oh, second thing, sorry, a better one. Don't register a company. You don't need to register ramp company to start doing what you're doing. Like a lot of people like, oh, I need to get a, a chartered accountant, I need to register a company. Once you register a company, you need to do all of these filings and you need a hire an accountant. It adds zero value to your business. It's just like, it's a, it's a burden. So unless you figure out, unless you are getting in some cash and there's a risk that the tax authority comes out and be like, hello, what are you doing? <laughs> unless you're at that state, don't like waste time and money setting up a company and things like that. Uh, so I would say those two would probably be No, but the third
1: one is a good one, the rent space, especially in time of COVID, you know, especially in time of COVID, it's like, okay, so, and it it differs, it it differs, and and we have to point out that people love your your auntie energy, so we have to quickly (laughs) point out that. (laughs) But but and, and you're right it, it, it differs in context like it depends on what kind of company you have. but oh, in some cases, but in some cases if you don't have to rent office space and this is indeed something, you can in, instead of renting off office space, you can go to a fancy re- restaurant for six times a month for the same amount of money you would spend on, a, on an office space and you treat your best customers just just to put it into perspective. So I think okay. yeah these are sort some great
2: tips. Yeah, awesome. I, I think we're gonna sum that up. Ruben's auntie energy tips. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is auntie? Is, is that a thing? Aunties? Yeah, because a, here. For example, all the aunties are like old ladies.
2: I,
1: I think Chef should explain it. Yeah, unfortunately, we can't have the people that comment explain it in the show, but I think it's 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 a sort of saying, it's, it's a sort of saying way. for for a Hindi auntie, I guess. But ah, uh, really it, got it, got it. but really from a it's from a positive perspective. So <laughs> yeah. so it's good.
0: <laughs> I think any compliment any energy is, is 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 plus.
2: You're getting love. Um <laughs> and maybe Safira writes that out. So but
0: sorry, sorry Diego, before I go on, since you yeah. mentioned love, you know you know what this is?
2: Yeah. <laughs> i do.
0: <laughs> a, I, I never knew this this is such an asian thing these are hearts <laughs> these are, yeah. like, like, people to like two hands oh man so lame let's just do it with one hand so yeah
2: yeah I, i've people. seen that i think uh, k-pop popularized that but just uh, to go full circle on this this part on the, on the startup you mentioned before like things that people you know you, you have two biggest learnings and three tips that people you know don't can basically ignore at at the early stages. But for you, going back to the company you were at, you know, you mentioned servant leadership, trying to get the best out of all these talented individuals in your team who are all there to grow themselves. And in that sense, you are also one of these individuals, even though you have that more leading managing role to grow yourself as well within the company. So, and... As you said, they once they've reached that plateau to a certain degree, they leave. And you as a manager got to decide, you know, it's, is it best for the company or, company or not? So at, at what point did you feel that you were ready to move on? And how did that, you know, affect or how did that go with the management or the managing team?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was super, super hard decision, man. Like, because, like... Like I used to work like directly under the, the CEO of the company. So I, I I had I had a large team. There was a to do at the company. Uh, of course, the pandemic wasn't easy on the company. We were in the fashion business. So, you know, fashion got really, really hit. Like think about when's the last time you bought any clothes, right? So the the, the industry was hit. It's pretty, pretty bad. But I think for me, at, at a more macro, it was always going in the back of my head. You know, even when I came down to the company, it was, it was quite random. Right? I never, this was never a company that I, I i hadn't even heard about it like maybe three months four months before i actually applied for them like i knew there was a friend who was doing something there but they were selling clothes like and if people who know me from 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 maybe back in university even before that they're like like people still ask me fashion what are you doing in a fashion company my favorite brand is uniqlo i only wear like these color tees so yeah like it, it was it like me coming down to this company also was just for the experience and i knew this was like a stepping stone for me i had to I had so much more to learn and I had to sort of, you know, I knew that I would eventually go back and try and start, start my own thing. And I think with, with the pandemic, and I don't know how counterintuitive it is anymore, but you know, with the world slowing down, I felt this was the best time to start something. Because, and if I had the luxury of saying that, you know, I can probably, you know, manage survive for the one year, one and a half year, right? I have that much more of savings. You know, the mindset of saving money never left me after my first company. I'm like, you know, irrespective of how much money I made, I'm gonna save this money because I wanna buy myself, you know, a runway when I start my next company. Uh, I just felt that it was, it was the right time for me to 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 do it. And I think the pandemic was the reason that, you know, most people, like it was a counterintuitive thing to do, of leave a job and start a company in the middle of the pandemic. So, so yeah, it was a very hard decision because it was comfortable, but I think that too was also sort of playing in the back of my, my mind is, you know, I've read about, again, this part of our coaching stuff around, if you're getting too comfortable in a spot, it's time to it's, go. It's, it's, it's time to go. And, you know, coming term, to terms with that is so hard. You're like, like, are you crazy? Like, why would you do this? <laughs> like, of course, people are telling you, but you yourself and you look at yourself in the mirror in the bathroom, you're like, like why? Like there are days today I'm like, why did you do that? Like, I don't understand. So, but but no, I think I think you follow the principles that when you are sort of getting too comfortable, you need to sort of push yourself out. They say magic happens outside your comfort zone. So yeah, I think for all of those reasons, I decided that it was time for me to to get out um, of my comfort zone, try something new. And yeah, it was super hard. Like my my team was like, oh, like everybody understood why I wanted to do it. They they knew me as a person and they knew this was gonna happen at some point or the other. Mm. But uh, but yeah, like transitioning out was was hard. The good thing is I had a. Fantastic team. So I was not worried about the business getting affected because I knew the guys who were, were heading these businesses were like the best in class. And like they were actually better than me at running the business, which is why they were running the business. <laughs> like I wasn't as, as good. Uh, that's the one reason we, we I hired them, right? They they say A's hires as, a's and B's hires C's. So all of these guys were A plus. So I was like, you know, the business is going to be fine, but for me, this is something I need to do next. So yeah, it was, it was bitter's uh, I knew I was sort of moving out in the next phase of my life, but, you know, closing that and, and moving away from it, it's its never easy. it was sad.
1: Diego, I, I think I, I have a proposal because we already hit the hour mark and I know oh, there's a yeah. lot we we want to talk about. So can we kind of use quick fire questions for maybe 10 minutes? to touch upon all the things that we haven't touched upon yet. Just do it in a quick uh, fire form that we do get to know Ruben a little bit more, but we also get to talk a little bit about crypto, a little bit about music, a little bit about all the things that we haven't dipped into. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I'm game for that. And if Ruben's up for it, let's go.
1: So Ruben, we're going to ask you some a a or B questions. Both is not the option. Of course, we're gonna try to get you to to answer uh, a, a specific direction. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go first, and don't feel if you want to explain why you chose an option. Feel free to to elaborate on it. So the first one would be YouTube or Spotify.
0: Spotify. Okay. Because it has podcasts.
1: <laughs> hey. <laughs>
2: Uh, oh, quickly on that, what's your podcasting platform of choice to listen?
0: Uh, um, it... So I split between Spotify and Pocket Case. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. But there are new Isn't random that's...
0: ones that I just want to check them out. I'll check them out on Spotify. It's too much effort to go into Pocket Case. But the ones which I regularly follow, they are all on Pocket Case.
2: Okay. Okay. So crypto, which do you think will crash harder or one already crashed. <laughs> no, uh, no, not a specific crypto, but we're kind of in a bull run again. So we yes. had the ICO run in 2017, and that's around the time from our previous conversation, you got into crypto yeah. space as well. So seeing that boom and crash and having this kind of NFT DeFi space run up again, do you think it will be as bad? Which will be worse, ICOs or the NFTs?
0: So actually, I wrote a I wrote an essay on this, on which is literally titled "I was wrong. This is not 2017." I I, I thought that for the longest time, when Bitcoin was at 12, when Bitcoin hit 15, when Bitcoin hit 30, and then it hit 60, and I'm like, Ruben, if whatever happens in the past, you cannot assume it's going to repeat in the future. It never happens but yeah i think the current nft craze is 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 a bubble for sure there's a lot happening in the macro wherein you know a lot of dollars which are getting printed are sort of getting funneled into into bitcoin people can buy bitcoin literally with five clicks so it's cool so people are doing it but i think there will be a correction no two ways about it but i think what i was talking about in that essay is we've essentially gone from like we've made a step function change every time these bull cycles happen so in the first 2017 cycle, yes, it was, it it was a, it was you know, a bubble. But everybody suddenly got much more educated about Bitcoin, about the blockchain. And yes, a lot of us lost money, but we didn't lose those learnings. And that has sort of compounded, at least for me personally, over the years, which is why I've stayed in the sector. The same is going to happen right now. Creators like you and me, I've now sort of taken a step function change on understanding how they can essentially leverage crypto and NFTs and all of that. And it'll take us some time to sort of, you know, fully capitalize on it. And maybe, you know, in two to three years, we'll be doing this all over again. But but yeah, I, I totally believe that there will probably be a correction. But will it go back to, three, will Bitcoin go back to 3000? Will Ethereum go back to $80? I don't think so. Uh, because I feel we've made a step function change on our understanding on, on how this world works.
1: Okay, so based on that, I'm thinking of whether we should stay mainstream or really go deep dive. But I think we should we should go mainstream. So so let's 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 keep it mainstream, and let's go Cardano or Ripple.
0: Uh, Cardano, just because it has, yeah, Ripple's been going through a lot of like back and forth, and I think Cardano is just more like over the last I think one month. I, I don't know that much about Cardano. But I feel it's they're doing a lot. Uh, it's suddenly risen, I think, to the third most market capitalized currency.
2: Okay. Um, staying within this space, let's stay go deeper on NFT. Okay. So within the NFT space, which adjacent like industry do you see adopting first? Gaming or digital art?
0: Mm. so i think there's already that both these industries already have some mod of it but i think it's gonna get super exciting in gaming like the possibilities are mind-blowing like the simplest example if i'm playing whatever say world of warcraft right and i've leveled up to i don't know i don't play world of warcraft but hypothetically i play world of warcraft and i've leveled up to 67 i can potentially sell that character to you And you start World of Warcraft at level 67. You don't have to waste your time going up that bloody curve, right? Like, you don't have to start the game from scratch. If you play Need for Speed, I can sell you a fully pit for for a price. And that's what sort of creates, like, are possible in the NFT world. So I'm just like, games are going to become micro economies. Like, they're going to be economists just observing games and be like, oh, like, this is, like, these are the laws it follows. So I'm much more excited about gaming.
1: I'm going to jump into this one, Diego, because I completely agree. I'm I'm going to explain why I think it's, it's much easier for gaming. My mom is a visual artist and with art, you basically, you want to create one art piece, like in, in, in exclusivity, that's what makes an art piece expensive. As soon as there are multiple of them, it's, it's kind of devalues the art and and if you have only have one of a certain item in a traditional art, in physical art, it is still, even if you can make multiple, because even if the serial number is different from the digital art, the fact that there are 10 pieces or even 10,000 pieces makes it a little bit more like, eh, but it's not as exclusive as traditional art. Whereas with gaming, there there are, much, there are many more dynam- dimensions that come into it. And I do want to point out, I bought an NFT pack, an NBA Top Shot pack this week, this past <laughs> week. <laughs> I do want to point that out. And I'm going to tell you, the, the, this is crazy. It's, it's really crazy. I, I, to, to give people, because there are some people watching, watching this and listening in, and are like, yeah, but come on. You're, yeah, you and a group of five people in the world are doing this. NBA Top Shot is a licensed NFT from the NBA with license moments from bas- from the the biggest basketball league in the world and the last edition of the last edition of packs had 6, six yeah 67 no 76000 packs available close to 70 thousand packs were available and there were 300,000 people in line to get one so just imagine that there's an nft which there are 70,000 from. And you're thinking like, I'm easily gonna get one because there's 70,000 of them. And then you get in line and there are 300,000 people in line and you're number 125,000 and you realize like, wait a minute, I'm not actually ever going to possess this unless I'm willing to pay Premium. at least three times the amount on on, on, the, on the marketplace. So these are really, and and. I didn't understand this until until it happened to become aware like, wait a minute, for certain NFTs and for certain markets, the NBA, there are millions of fans all over the world. So, and, and that makes it kind of hard for NFT art because you do want the kind of the exclusivity to say like, I know the artist, I personally know the artist. So I think in gaming, it's much easier. And I think gaming is a little bit further as well
0: yeah i think there's an interesting concept called in, in this podcast somebody mentioned is the the adoption the, the adoption of digital art actually depends on how the artist thinks about it because the yeah. artist understands scarcity they will be careful on how much nfts they release because if the it's, it's like the it's like the chicken and the golden egg right yeah you're like okay one golden egg a day fine but if you start getting greedy and be like okay i'm going to release like 500 art pieces today and you like Whatever, like the analogy of killing the golden egg, then boom, then then there's nothing. So if artists understand scarcity, I think they will they will survive and thrive in the NFT world. If they think, wow, this is a good way for me to make multiple copies and make a quick buck, um, I think they might not, you know, win the long game.
2: Yeah, and in that sense, it comes down to community. I think again, to community yeah. that those. 100 true engaged followers and I think mentioning the art space Beeple is a prime example of that
1: mentioned in so, the comments as well I guess
2: yeah so
0: guess, guess but, where people lives Singapore <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find the guy he's somewhere around in the city <laughs> a fun time Vitalik lives in Singapore apparently that's what I've heard I'm not seeing it okay him, yeah heard.
2: so for those of you who who are listening, are, are kind of lost in the co- conversation now since we're mentioning <laughs> oh. random names and letters here. So let let's let me give some quick context. So NFTs are basically born out of the blockchain space, and it's it's application of blockchain. And the recent craze has been on you know digital artists selling artworks. Sean uh, Luke mentioned the NBA Top Shot. Why would someone buy like a a 15 second clip of a moment in history that you can just watch on YouTube for free? And that's kind of blowing up right now. Coming back to the art example, Beeple, we've mentioned community and why people would uh, buy something like that. Beeple is actually an, an artist I've been following for a few years now. And why I started following is when I heard about his story was he's been, dishing out a digital creation from scratch every day for the past 13 years without missing a day Whew. and that kind of built him like this cult following He's has for the, the biggest brands in the world as well and still push out his own personal artworks just to get one bit better and this resonated with like a lot of people i think and when he found out about NFTs and dished out his first, you know, practice NFT, <laughs> that blew up. That blew up. It was ridiculous. People were, he dropped a, a set for $1 uh, each. I don't know how many there were, but people bought those up. And they, it, they resold it for 80, dollars $90,000 a piece. So if you think no one's going to buy it, this community that you've built actually is going to engage. And now he's actually, you know. Uh, using it to fund causes like climate change, doing fundraising like that, because he's already made it. And I think he sold uh, last week the most expensive artwork from for a living artist, I think. I'm not sure if it's in the top 10, but somewhere up there for 69 million equivalent US dollars for a digital piece.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. You you guys, in fact, should ask the audience like if... Theoretically, Diego and Jean-Luc could sell their very first podcast. Would you like, would, would you want to own that? Like you would actually- wow. you know, Everybody can listen. It's like the Mona Lisa, right? You can go to the museum and see the Mona Lisa, but you don't own the Mona Lisa. But if you could, like everybody can listen to the, their, their first podcast, but if you could own it, would you want to own that? And Whoa. I don't know who to pay for it, but would you want to own that? Like I think somebody in the community might want to own that.
1: Whoa. I was, I was in that space because Stefan was looking at me like saying like I was in, in my head was going around. But but having our own moments and we're going to have to, of course, change the name because it, it's copyrighted. But having indeed social convos like NFTs of social convos I mean that's that's just a brilliant idea. I think we're gonna have you have to give you at least three percent of every sale, Ruben, <laughs> for, for bringing that up. But but I think yeah, I think we're we're definitely heading into into that direction, and I think people are gonna slowly wake up and understand what's going on. It's it's gonna take at least ten years. Because before this is mainstream and and people will understand about like wait a minute these people became and we're not talking specifically about us but people of our generation even younger that will become are already becoming millionaires because they understood the space and how technology works and they were were in front so and that that brings me to my last question because we're we're way over time here and I know we really want to thank you that you're doing this for us. But how how can we use this technology to bring bring people more together? Hmm. If if you would if you would be given the opportunity, saying like, okay, you're in Singapore, you're being put in in a brain trust or at least a, a mastermind group to come up with a solution on how we can actually bring bring people more together using cryptocurrency or using the blockchain. What, what best use case have you seen or what creative concept do you have in mind that can actually, instead of s- separating two sides of the world even more, how can, how can we bring them together?
0: I think I would like maybe try to use that technology to recreate a social networks. I think social networks, Facebook, Instagram, they were started to bring people together, sort of know what everybody's up to. But I think where they've reached right now is is very far from where, what they hope to start with. Uh, I, for example, I'm hardly on Facebook. I, I don't post on Instagram because it's like, it does more harm to me, in my opinion, than, than good. Uh, but I, and I think the two core reasons why that happened is these businesses were essentially built on taking our data and selling it to advertisers. And that was the fundamental business model. And I feel what blockchain allows is, is a switch to that business you can essentially set up a decentralized you know social social platform a social network wherein each of us you know owns our data we're not selling it to advertisers but you know we give up how much of data we, we want to but you know we, we find a way to sort of keep in touch we, we we're getting the feed which we actually want to see and not somewhat an advertisers pushing now yes we're not like the problem of People making life better than what it looks like still continues on social media, and I, I don't think that that's going to go away. But, but, but yeah, I feel I feel there's an opportunity to recreate how social networks work because right now it's on like to be honest, my social network is WhatsApp. It's my it's my groups on WhatsApp. That's how I keep keep up with people, and it's very inefficient. So yeah, I, I would try to build a better social network which does not compromise people's privacy, which does not compromise people's data, which is not incentivized by Showing people advertising, which is not incentivized by maximizing the amount of time they spend on the app the entire day, but it essentially solves the purpose of hey, you know, can you sort of check in with people with the least amount of time, which is totally anti-advertising business models. So yeah, if I had a choice, that's what I would do.
1: Theo calls it open social protocol, black, uh, backed by blockchain, yeah. and and everybody knows I'm gonna say that's Hive. But, uh, Diego, go ahead for the last question for tonight.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, if you're not on Hive yet, hit us up later. But coming back full circle, you're at this next stage now. You've um, got the plateau and you've built this runway. You're in one of the, I guess, best situationally geographically places in Asia, you have access to markets, to financial services, basically an ideal situation to make the most of it. What's next for you?
0: So I think that the spaces where I'm most curious, and I think I would like to, you know, be involved in the next couple of years, is somewhere in the intersection of the creator economy. So like podcasters, I, I run my own podcast, And I sort of started that, I think, back in October, just to see what this entire creative world is. I've been making music, I DJ, so I've sort of been like a creator for for a lot of my life, but never thought that was something serious. But now I see more and more people and the tools and infrastructure being built out to allow people to do that, right? And at least in Asia, and especially like I've been most, you know, developing countries, there are always more people than jobs. So it sort of creates a more, more you know, sustainable way for people to earn a livelihood and it's getting easier and easier. So the create economy, crypto, I feel that is absolutely the future. I think where we are right now is sort of where the internet was in 1970, 1980. It's super hard to understand. Like probably only technologists really understand that. But I think in the next 10, 15 years, we already see signs of it, right? There are gonna be like applications built on top of it. The, 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 The example I like to use is, nobody really understands how Android works, but all of us love Candy Crush. So let's, the, today's blockchain is where Android is, the Android is being built. But a couple of years, they're there to be a lot of candy crushes. And, you know, I, I think it's still a very early time to enter the space. Uh, the intersection of creators and, and, and crypto, the entire NFT space, I think is very exciting. But I'm also quite passionate about higher education. It was also one of the reasons I, I signed up for OnDeck because they're one of the few companies who are trying to disrupt what's happening in, in higher education and university. So yeah, to be honest, truth be told, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do next. I've been, you know, toying around. Uh, I've been working on this project on the side called Rolodex, which the goal is to essentially help people stay connected with people they don't meet that often. And on the assumption that you're just tired of social media and liking somebody's picture doesn't really mean you're staying connected with them. So I've been working on that project uh, on the side. I've been running a podcast, you know, figuring out, talking to people to see what I want to do next. But hopefully in the next three, four, five months, I have something more concrete. But right now I'm just... Yeah, I'm figuring.
2: What's the podcast name? Where can people find it? And you mentioned you're not really on the socials, but still, how could people connect with you if, if you want them to connect with you at least?
0: Yeah, so my podcast is called Drumroll Ruben's Podcast. You can find it on, on uh, Spotify. Uh, that's S podcast, uh, where I talk to people who I've known for about 10 years about how their lives have changed over the last 10 years and the lessons they've learned along the way. So that's that. If you can find me on Medium, I write a lot. I won't say a lot, but I, I usually put a lot of my thoughts on crypto, what I learned at my company on, at, on Medium. It's Ruben Norona. I actually don't know what it's called. It's probably at Ruben on, on Medium. Yeah, we, we can drop it on I, I don't know if you guys can find it. But. And yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm trying to grow my Twitter. I feel that's a cool place to be. But you can follow me at Norona Ruben. I usually... Retweet. I don't tweet. <laughs> I retweet about crypto digital art and I usually retweet a lot of that stuff. But I, I plan to get get a bit better on Twitter.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much for being here with us, Ruben, and giving us the perspective on the other side of the world from the future. So <laughs> appreciate that and appreciate also staying a bit longer because we, we know how this goes. We always go over time once a, the conversation starts getting juicy. So appreciate <laughs> you staying here. Um, no for the problem. people that that tuned in, thank you again for tuning in, being engaged with us, asking the questions. That's how we, you know, try to keep it social. And this episode will be released on Saturday on the podcasting platform. So if you have got friends who've missed it, refer it to them, or if you want to re-listen to it, audio version or a, a more cut down version, that's going to be there and appreciate it if you guys got any feedback dm us email us uh, the website's been recently updated with the newsletter s- section so you guys can sign up there as well we're planning to build that out and get some more you know exclusive and more concrete content in that sense With that being said Chan luke uh, could you go want to go through the comments one last time if we haven't missed anything and then roll us out
1: Kevin says, what we talked about today, what we talked about today, if you're really interested in social media and you're interested in blockchain, you have to check out Hive. Hive turned one year old this past week. They were announced today as the winner of the most innovative blockchain product. So really check it out. Some other comments. Thank you, Ruben. It was awesome energy. It was another great show. Thank you for Stephanie also for joining in. And good to see, actually, the, the, the LinkedIn top comments jumping in as well, because we like, we like to know if that platform is also being fueled, which we just got acknowledged for. Hey, this was Social Confos for tonight. We had a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you, Diego. And thank you for all of you watching, commenting. We'll be back next Tuesday at nine o'clock, Srinamese time. See you guys and have a great week. (laughs) Bye-bye.